0: So, for all of our guests, uh, this is our standard sermon series that we're going through throughout the year. Uh, We are studying the book of James. Uh, We are doing a series entitled Steadfast Faith for Trying Times. Uh, You'll see the word steadfast behind. We leave that on stage just to remind us that even though the culture may be going one way, even though trials or temptations may be coming, that our God requires steadfast faith because he is worthy. He is a faithful God and we can trust him. So today you join us as we jump into James chapter one verses thirteen through eighteen in the continuation of this series. Uh, To bring you all back up to speed, just by way of reminder, we looked at James chapter one verses two through twelve. It talked about the external test, James chapter one verse two and verse twelve kind of a restatement of each other. The main theme of the book, talking about how we can indeed stand steadfast as we go through various tests, uh, and that we should, in fact, count them all joy. And so a difficult scenario there, but James transitions in verse 13 after talking about these tests, and he takes a different turn. It's the exact same Greek word used in verse 12 that's used in verse 13, but the context indicates to us that in verse 12, he's talking about those external tests that come our way, in verse 13, he's transitioning to the internal trials or temptations that we may face. And so here we move from external test to internal temptation. There may be no more practical sermon that you will hear, no more practical verses of scripture than those which help us to understand temptation, to understand ourselves, to understand God better so that we can know how to live the Christian life and to resist the temptations that come our way. So I encourage you today, lock in on this text. Open your Bibles, open your phones, open your iPads, whatever you have, get to the text, get to James chapter 1 verse 13. Now I want to paint a picture for you as we start. It may be far-fetched, it may be a little hard for some of you to grasp, I don't know. Any of you, can you imagine having a test coming up? Anybody? Okay, I've got to talk to our faculty. There are two of you that raised your hands that you have a test coming up. How many of you have a test in the next three weeks? How many of you have a test today? Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. That's, that's about what I expected. Okay, so imagine a test. Why do, why do we give tests? It's because your faculty love you so much. They want to bless you with the opportunity to show how much you have learned and And to encourage you in your successful gaining of knowledge along the way. Those tests you should count as joy is what James has told us, right? Somebody said what? (laughs) Okay, maybe that's not quite the context. But you get my point. There's a test that's coming. That test, sometimes when you study really hard and you know the material forward and backward and you are excited to take a test. Okay, maybe not. Anybody, when I was ready, I was ready. I mean, when it was time and I knew the material and I knew it forward and backward, bring the test on. I'm gonna destroy this test in the name of Jesus, right? I mean, I'm just gonna demolish this test. You bring your best, professor. I've got it covered. Anybody, anybody relate to that or am I the only one? No, you guys, you guys are smart. You know this, you've got it. Oh, but there are sometimes When that test is coming, and you're not ready. You have stayed up all night to try to pack in the information you should have been learning for the past four weeks, but somehow it's just not sticking in your brain. And what happens? That test then becomes an opportunity for temptation in our hearts. When anxiety begins to build... When we begin to recognize perhaps our, our laziness or our procrastination or other tendencies in our life, and sometimes, not with, not with you, not with students at Cedarville University, surely, but with students at every other school in the country, there is the temptation to cut corners. Oh, you would never do that, would you? You know, if, if I just make a little note card and write down this, three, this, this little bit of information or... Or if I just use my phone or all oh, these new watches, they, they have all sorts of technology on them. Or if I do, I could make a really good grade. Mom and dad would be really proud. They would be really, the teacher would be impressed. I could keep my scholarships. It's, it's, it's just a little corner. I'll go back and learn the material later. I'm, this doesn't really matter for my career anyway. Is anybody ever going to find out? Is You see where I'm going, right? That test can become a temptation either to worry, either to cheat, either to compromise. Or if you do really, really well on a test, that test can become a temptation to engage in pride. Look at how smart I am, not recognizing that God's the one that gave you all of the gifts that you have utilized as a good steward and you're supposed to use them for his glory. So then you become puffed up in your own head. I know everything. Nobody else knows anything. And that's also a temptation. An external test Has the opportunity to become an internal temptation to us, and James transitions to this particular thought. And this is the central idea I hope you take home after we look at this text Temptation takes, but God gives. Temptation takes, but God gives. We're going to walk through this text and we're going to understand that God doesn't send those temptations to you. That temptations, in fact, lead to death, but God gives you good gifts. He is the perfect giver of gifts. God gives you life. And so temptation will take and take and take, but God will give and give and give. And we should not give into the temptation which will take from us, but we should lean into the God who will give to us. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Would you stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word? says in verse 13, "...let no one say when tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death." Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Dear Lord, today I pray that You will help us To perhaps gain an understanding or a right way of thinking about temptation, about ourselves, and about you. God, help us to fight against temptation, not to make peace with our sin or our desires. Lord, help us to live a life worthy of the gospel in which you have called us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. We have three points in our text today that I want to walk through. To break the text down, I first want to talk about understanding temptation, then understanding ourselves, then understanding God. So our first point from verse 13 is understanding temptation. You notice in culture there are a lot of different sayings. I've got some sayings for you here on the screen. Will Rogers once said there were two great movements in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Flip Wilson made popular that famous saying that somehow every kid still finds out about, the devil made me do it. Have you ever used that phrase, the devil made me do it? It's a popular phrase when you want to get out of trouble. Modern society, I think, might rephrase that and say, God just made me that way. For any number of things that we want to give in to, there is the temptation for us to pass the buck. There is the temptation for us to say, the devil made me do it. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. There's the temptation for us to say, God made me that way. There's the temptation in all of our lives that's as old as the Garden of Eden For us to blame others for our sin and for our sinful actions. When we do things, when we get mad, we can even blame the person that we got mad at for our anger. I wouldn't have got mad if you didn't do that. So is it their fault that I got mad? I would not have gone into despair. I would not have gone into depression. It's your fault. In fact, we know that this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden and he gave them one tree, one test. And that one test was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To show that God had ultimate authority, he granted other authority to Adam, but don't eat of the one tree. Everything else you can have, you can subdue, you can manage, you can work, you can tend, not that tree. That tree's off limits. One test, and along comes a serpent. And that serpent tempts Eve, and along is Eve who gives to Adam, and Adam and Eve both eat, their eyes are open, they hide, and God comes along and asks that great rhetorical question, Adam, where are you? Knowing all along where he was. And then he asks the question, who told you that you were naked? And what does Adam say in response even back then? God, that woman, he passes the blame. Eve, that serpent. But have you ever noticed in the text, there in Genesis chapter 3, that Adam doesn't just blame Eve, Adam blames God. Adam says, It's that woman whom you created. In other words, Adam is looking at God in the face of God and saying, God, you gave me all these good things and you did all this and all these animals and I named them all and that was a really long day and then along comes this woman and she was beautiful. She was the most beautiful woman in the world but God, that's the woman you made so it's your fault because you could have made a better woman. God, if you had made a better woman that would not have eaten of the apple then I wouldn't have eaten up the apple so God, this is your fault. You made a bad creation. Do you see what that means in the text there when he says, God, the woman you made and James says to us, don't you even dare. Don't you even begin in life to start thinking that way of false thoughts and false logic to say to God, God, what I do in my sinfulness is your fault because you put me in this place, in this circumstance. Your circumstance may be the opportunity for your sin. It's not the cause of your sin. Don't you look at God and say to God, God, this is your fault. James says it this way in verse 13 where he says to us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God may allow trials to come into your life. God in his permissive will may allow a test to come into your life. God is so holy that he cannot be tempted. There is no ounce of sin in God. God is the definition of holy. The word holy doesn't exist without the God that defines it. And we cannot say that that God, that holy God is tempting us. That is bad logic. It is heresy and it is against what scripture tells us. Do not blame your sin upon God. This is very practical. God, this temptation is so great. It lures me and entices me. I wouldn't have given in to this temptation if you didn't make me this way, God. And then we have crossed the line. Because God sent his son to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin and his Holy Spirit to live within us, to give us the power to resist the temptation. We are not to blame God for our faults or our errors. We must understand the nature of temptation. We must understand that we have to expect temptation. Here, we must make sure that we expect temptation will come because we see in verse 13, it says when he is tempted. And second, we must not blame God for that temptation. If you are walking through life and you are not consciously aware of your own temptations and your own desires and where your own weaknesses is, may I encourage you just to get biblical wisdom in your life? Each one of us is given to a certain temptation. Each one of us is enticed by something. Each one of us may be enticed by something different, but each one of us is gonna have a temptation that comes our way. We should know with biblical wisdom that Satan is the lion. He's prowling around. He's seeking to devour. We are going to be tempted. We should know what that temptation is. We should know what we shouldn't put into our minds or into our ears to help us resist where our temptations are. We should know what circumstances we should not place ourselves in because we know those temptations are coming. We should live our life in a wise, strategic, intentional way so that we are focused on being what God wants us to be and being a good steward of what God has given us. We must understand temptation. But if God is not responsible for my sin, then who is? Second, we must understand ourselves. Look at verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, we see three steps. We see people who are enticed, entrapped, and then enslaved. Look at what it says here in verse 14. It says, but each person, all of us, when we are tempted, we're all tempted. And when we're tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each one of us is gonna be enticed. Each one of us, will experience a temptation, but those temptations may be vastly different. It was that great country music theologian, Kenny Chesney, who said to us in a song, it's your favorite sins that do you in. And when you think about it, we look out at all the different temptations. And my temptation may not be your temptation, and your temptation may not be somebody else's temptation, but the text is telling us that when we encounter temptations, you will... And when each of us encounters our temptation that the devil has crafted just for us, it's because of our inward desires. So who do we blame for our sin? We have met the enemy, and he is us. I am my own worst problem because of my own sinful desires. And the text says here in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own sinful desires, his own desire. Here the word lured is actually a hunting term that means that you would catch in a trap or you would catch in a net and you would drag away. The word enticed is more of a, a fishing term to entice with bait or something of that nature. Now, James in his day didn't have a rod and reel and, and shad wrap rappellas or fishing lures of that particular nature. But when I think about this and I, and I understand the original meaning of those words, I start thinking about when I go fishing. Any fishermen out here in the room? A couple of you, Yeah. I love to go fishing. My favorite form of fishing is I like to fish with a plastic worm, Texas rig for largemouth bass. When I'm fishing for that Texas largemouth bass or anywhere else, but Texas and Florida, they grow bigger because it's it's warmer. As I throw that worm out into the water and that worm, I'm placing it strategically into a location that in my mind anyway, looks like a place where a bass would be sitting. I drop this worm right down in front of this bass. If I want to, I I may put some attractant onto this worm. This worm is perfect. It has no deformities in it. I have bought 12 of them perfectly in a pack so that I could put one perfectly onto the hook. I have hidden the hook up into the plastic rubber of the worm so that the fish can't see the hook because apparently if the fish sees the hook, that's a really bad thing. So I hide it up under the rubber so that the fish can't even... Tell that there's a hook in it when he first takes a bite of that gummy worm, and you put the attractant on it so it it has something extra. I don't know what. It's in water. I don't know why the attractant stays on, but they sold it to me, and I put it on there, and I put it in front, and, and I begin to to bounce that worm along the bottom, and, and as I move it up, I can feel what's on the bottom, and you can feel that worm just kind of bouncing along. So imagine a large mouth bass sitting up under a cliff, and all of a sudden this worm comes and lands right in front of him, and he thinks a dumb worm. I'm going to eat that worm. What is that worm doing right next to me? I don't even have to work for that worm. Look at it bounce. It bounces so nice. Oh, and there's some really gummy stuff on there that looks really good. And smells really, I don't know if fish can smell, but it smells really good. Whatever. It attracts them. And all of a sudden, this bass that may have lived in this pond for eight years, 10 years, four years, I don't know. He's lived there a long time. All of a sudden, he decides, this is it. I'm going to go get it. I can't resist. And the bass comes out. And the bass bites a hold of that worm and all of a sudden I feel the tug on the line and the line begins to move and I reel down real close and I set the hook to the best of my ability and I begin to drag that bass away from that hole and into my boat and onto the grill with some nice lemon pepper seasoning (laughs) and that bass becomes a blessing Now, that bass didn't expect that juicy worm that happened to land right beside him to be his utter destruction, did he? If he did, wouldn't have eaten the worm. And so it is with us. James is telling us it's our own desire. It's what we want. Now, if I, I even thought about bringing my fishing rod in here, but I decided just to do it with imagination. But if I, if I threw right down the middle of the, the aisle here a juicy worm with fish attracted on it, how many of you would jump out and bite the hook? (laughs) Hopefully nobody. We would have other issues if that happened. You're not attracted by a gummy worm. Plastic bait does you no good. You don't want it. You can go to Walmart and buy a whole bunch of them really cheap without hooks in them and do whatever you want to do with them, I guess. And so they don't attract you. But, but each of us has a desire, and your desire may be different from my desire, but there is a desire that will entrap you. There is a desire that may be riches. It may be fame. It may be pride. It may be lust. It may be that you struggle with, with how you look, and so you, you're given to anorexia or bulimia or cutting, or you're given to an arrogance, or you're given to lying and exaggeration because you want to please people. It may be any number of sins, and I may not have mentioned yours, but you know what it is. You know what it is that entices you that you feel in your very soul a welling up of temptation. Each time that temptation comes, you see it, you feel it, you know it. And the bad thing is, you like it. It would not be desirous to you if you didn't enjoy it, if you didn't like it. And so what you struggle with is not what I struggle with, but we all struggle with something. And so we have to make sure that we understand this. And this allows us to have patience with others because what you're tempted with and you sin with, it's not enticing to me at all. And I can look at you and say, how can you struggle with this? How can you be tempted by that? I look at our culture and I say, how can heroin tempt you? Don't you see what it does to people at the end of the day, but to the person who is addicted and desirous of heroin, their temptation to them is every bit as strong as the temptations I have in my own life. And so I should have compassion because we all have the same sinful nature that lures us away from God, that entices us to be trapped and drug away from a holy God. So I don't stand up with pride and look at somebody else and say, I'm a better person than you. I look at them with compassion and I say, brother, I know, I know the feeling of desires. I know the feeling that entices me and entraps me and urges me to go away from God. And can I say to you, let's resist those urges together, even though they may be very different. We should have compassion with one another. Bonhoeffer in his book entitled Temptation describes it this way. He says, with irresistible power, Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love or fame or power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, that moment of temptation, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only the desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will in the deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, even expected of me now here In my particular situation, to appease desire is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. End quote. We are enticed. There are often even in our own minds we think to ourselves, I could get rid of this desire if I just give in to it, it will go away. And we falsely, with bad logic, assume that if I give in, then it'll be okay. But when we give in, we understand that that enticement leads to an entrapment. And that entrapment at first may not be as strong as it will one day grow if allowed to fester in our lives, and that entrapment then leads to an enslavement, and that enslavement leads to death, and that's what our text is about. A young oak, as you first plant it into the ground, even a boy could take a sapling and bend a sapling over. A young man could take a larger tree and move that larger tree, but once that oak is allowed to be rooted into our lives, once that sin has entrapped us and enslaved us, and that oak grows to be a mature oak, a hundred men can't wrap that oak and pull it down it is entrapped it is enslaving the very host who allows it to begin and so I urge you with everything that is in me when desire comes resist that desire do not allow that desire to give birth to sin to entrap you and to enslave you and here this is where James changes his analogy entirely he says to us each person when he is tempted is lured and enticed by his own desire in verse 15 the desire when it has conceived that desire that wells up in us when our mind has conceived it and allowed it to give birth to sin, what does sin do? It gives birth to sin and even though we may think, oh, it's going to go away or, oh, I can handle it, when it gives birth to sin, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we undergo temptation, we never see the end, we only see the beginning. To state it another way, when we undergo temptation, we see the beauty of the desire Not the ugliness of the destruction. Be wise. Be wise in the Lord. Understand those sinful desires or temptations that draw us away or drawing us to destruction, to utter destruction, to conceive sin, which when fully grown will bring forth death. Sin brings death. Temptation takes away from us. Temptation ruins us. Temptation will take more than you want it to take. It'll cost you more than you want it to pay. It will stay longer than you want it to stay. Temptation is the bad that is taking from you, and yet God is the good that is giving to you. I have met my enemy. He is me. You have met your enemy too. And it is you. I put some questions here just for us to think through on the slides. What is my problem? I am. It's not God. It's my sinful nature that lives within me that urges me to run from God. When do I resist sin? The moment I feel the desire for it. What does sin bring? Death. So the next time you see that pop-up ad that comes up on the internet screen that lures you to entice you to click on that particular ad thing to yourself, that brings death. It doesn't bring life to me. Temptation takes, it doesn't give. It does not have my best interest at heart. The next time the opportunity to cut corners, the sinful temptation that appeals to you, to lie, to gossip, to let the pride of life swell up within you, whatever your desire may be. The next time that desire hits you, think about this. What's my problem? I am. I am my problem. I am the reason I am not following God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's me. It's my sinful nature. I must lean into the scripture. I must lean into God. What do I do? When do I resist the sin? I resist it at the very moment I feel the desire for it. If I allow it to fester, if I allow myself to make peace with that desire, I will give in to that temptation. If I allow my brain to begin rationalizing, I will give in to that temptation. I must feel that desire and immediately confront that desire with the truth of the word of God and say, no, I will not give in to that desire. Oh, if you learn that lesson in your life, it will save you so much tragedy in your life. It will save you so much heartache in your life to learn at the moment the desire hits, I resist that desire. What does sin ultimately bring me? Death. Destruction. Devastation. He continues on. We understand temptation. We understand ourselves. He provides us with an understanding of God. Just a glimpse here. As he says to us in verse 16, do not be deceived. He uses deceived three times here in the opening of this book. He wants us not to have bad thinking, not to be deceived. We can deceive ourselves by thinking it's God's fault. We can deceive ourselves at other times too by thinking that God is holding back on us. And so he says... Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's talking to them as beloved brothers. You hear the compassion, the endearment that he presents to them. Every good gift and every perfect gift, a redundant statement, everything that's good, every perfect gift is from above. It does not come from below. It does not come from the world around us. It does not come from within our sinful, idle factory creating hearts. It comes from above. Every good, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the God that created all of the lights, all of the stars, all of the universe, that Father in whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We watch as the shadows that are being cast by the lights or by the sun change or they shift. And here it's saying the brightness of God's goodness, the brightness of God's glory does not change in time. It is steadfast, it is steady. You can bank on it today, tomorrow, Forever, you can trust God. God is faithful and you can trust Him. Sometimes we blame our temptations on God. Sometimes we want to see God as holding back on us. God, why won't you give me the good things I want? Maybe they're not good things. We think they are. We think God's holding back. The devil wants us to see God as a cosmic killjoy, the devil wants us to see God as the legalistic enforcer in the sky. You can relate. The devil wants us to see God as that power-hungry security guard or that power-hungry mall cop who walks around writing everybody tickets for any little bitty violation and you come out and have frustration with them because they are power-hungry. The devil wants us to see God like a yearbook photographer, perhaps, who won't let you wear the same shirt to get your yearbook picture made. (laughs) For those of you who are students here at Cedarville and look at Overheard. You get the picture, right? The cosmic killjoy. Is that God? No. That's not God. That's not the right picture of God. God is not the legalistic enforcer of the sky that wants to suppress your joy. God is the giver of good and perfect gifts. God is the one who grants you the things you need, the things you want, the things that you should have. When I think about God, when I think about this, Satan's enticements are costly. costly. God's gifts are good, I think back to one of my favorite stories, Lord of the Rings. Oh. You remember the scene? It's in the Fellowship of the Rings. It's when Gandalf has come and Gandalf is, is going to talk to Bilbo Baggins and he's talking to Bilbo there in the, the little bitty hut there in the shire and He's talking to him about the ring, the ring which symbolizes evil, that sinfulness, that power of enticement. And he's talking to Bilbo about having the ring so long that it begins to become his precious. That sin begins to entrap and enslave. And you remember when he asked him, Bilbo, you should leave the ring behind. Is that so hard? And Bilbo responds, well, No. And yes, I draw your attention finally to verse 18. This is important because James is often looked at as a book based on a works view of salvation, and it is not. It is a view of works after salvation, saved unto salvation. Look at verse 18, though. It says, of his own will, of whose will? Of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. That word of truth, that phrase... That we see in Psalm one nineteen forty three, Ecclesiastes twelve ten, Ephesians one thirteen, Colossians one five, and 2 Timothy two fifteen. What does that phrase, the word of truth, mean? I have some cross references for you here on the screen. Colossians one five says, "Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you." Ephesians one thirteen, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This last verse, it talks about God being the giver of good gifts. It talks about the fact that it is the word of truth. It is the gospel that by God's own will, he has used the gospel to grant you and me to be a first fruit of his restoration of all creation. We are his first fruits. It is not by works that we are saved. It is two works, two good works that we are saved. You know a tree by his fruit. And this verse plays into that very well to help us understand the overall theme. We must understand temptation. We must understand ourselves. We must understand God. I've got some questions for you that I want to ask you. What is my problem? I am. What do I do? And when do I resist sin? The moment I feel the desire for it. What does sin bring? Death. What does God give? Life. God is no conjurer of cheap tricks seeking to prevent you from having the good gifts of life god is the one who brings forth the word of truth for your benefit for you to be first fruits for you to experience the resurrection from the dead eternity with him god is the giver of good gifts your sin you should leave your sin behind is that so hard well no and yes Is your ring still in your pocket? May with each of us, if you're here today enslaved entrapped, trapped, enticed, may each of us take the temptation of our desires and drop the ring of sin. Lean into the Word of God. Meditate, memorize, internalize. Lean into a Heavenly Father that is the giver of good gifts so that we may live a life of steadfast faith for trying times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, I pray for myself. I pray for our faculty. I pray for our staff. And I pray for our students and all of our guests that you would help us, Lord, to understand temptation and to be wise, knowing that we will be tempted and that it will be based on our desires but Lord, not to allow it to conceive sin, which brings death, but allow us to resist, to lean on your word, on the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. Lord, allow us to resist that temptation and to recognize you only as the giver of good and perfect gifts. Lord, may we live a life that honors you, that follows you, that seeks you. For that is our prayer, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you are dismissed.